You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, once again, in Matthew chapter 20, we're in a section in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem in order to go to the cross. But in preparation for the cross and in preparation for Jerusalem, Jesus is pouring into his disciples, giving them various teachings and lessons that they would need to absorb in order to be the apostolic leaders of the new church. And one of the phrases that's interestingly enough repeated throughout this section is Jesus saying that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In other words, in order to really appropriately understand what this life here on earth is all about, and in order for these men to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus, and in order for them to become the servants of the future church that they would need to be and face uh, death and ridicule and persecution and shame, in order to uh, you know, embrace that role of God upon their lives. They would have to embrace the concept that the first will be last and the last will be first. If that is the overarching principle of your life, that as the last, there is something greater that is coming for me. If I'm, if I'm faithful to the Lord today, there is greatness that will follow. But if I feed myself today and put off the things of the Lord and make myself first today, I will be last eternally. The first will be last and the last will be first. So to back up that teaching, Jesus here in Matthew chapter 20, verse one, has another parable to share with his men concerning the kingdom. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And so again, Jesus has just told them of the impossibility of a rich man entering into the kingdom in his own merit and in his own might with, with man. This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, Peter, however, has said to him, hey, Lord, we left everything and we followed you. What will we get? What will we receive from you. So Jesus is going to ex expound upon Peter's idea of God's payment for sacrifice and labor and work in this uh, world. And so he talks about a master of a house or a landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his uh, vineyard. And this would be early in the morning. We're talking about six in the morning, kind of early in the morning, which, you know, just thinking about the parable right off the, right off the bat from the get-go, you see the idea here of a land owner or a master of a house looking for laborers. And this is, of course, a picture of God's kingdom. The Lord himself is always looking for laborers. There are no unemployment lines in God's kingdom, as they say. There is always work to be done. There is always an opportunity. If we would lift our eyes to the harvest, we would see the great labor, the great work that is in front of us. 
And after agreeing, verse 2, with the laborers for a denarius a day, which was the common wage uh, for a day, a denarius, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, now the third hour would be about nine in the morning, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, Go you also into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, so this would be around noon, uh, and the ninth hour, which would be around about three o'clock in the afternoon, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, so five o'clock at night, it's basically quitting time, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, Go you also into the vineyard. So you have these different uh, waves of workers that this uh, landowner or master of the house acquires for himself. Some that he hires at six in the morning for a full long day. Others at nine in the morning for a pretty full day. Others at noon for a half day. Others at three in the afternoon for a very short minimum day. And others at five in the evening for basically just the cleanup time uh, of the work. And so he hires basically everyone. And when evening came, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, and again, this is Jesus speaking, he said, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, Remember that the only laborers who agreed to a set wage were the 6 a.m. laborers. And they agreed to a denarius for a full day of work. Here, those came forward who began working at the 11th hour. Those are the 5 p.m.ers. And each of them received a full denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Again, a saying from Jesus. So to recap it, I know I read a long section there, but to recap it, payment time comes after this long and obscure day of work where the master of the house hires all these people at these different times. The people that started working at 5 o'clock at night were probably rejoicing greatly that they got paid a full day's wage for just an hour of work. Those that came forward who started the day at 6 a.m., by the time it got to them, they assumed that they would not get the agreed-upon denarius, but that they'd get something much greater because, after all, the people that started work a full 11 hours after they had received a denarius, so they assumed that they would get 
more than it, and a denarius. And they were a little outraged to discover that they actually got what they agreed with the master of the house for. They, over, they got one denarius. And they were upset by this. And the master of the house said, listen, I did no wrong to you. I can give away what I want to. And did I not agree with you for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Do you begrudge my generosity? And I think in one sense, what Jesus is communicating here through this parable is he's saying, listen, what God is looking for is faithfulness. He's looking for people who take the amount of time that they have in front of them and they are completely faithful with that opportunity. Uh, there are those who in the very last stages of their lives, the 5 p.m., so to speak, of the workday, they'll give their lives to the Lord at that moment. And if they are faithful for the rest of their lives, even if it is only a few months or a few years, they will receive that full reward from the Lord. Others like me as a good example. I grew up in a godly home. My father showed me the word of God, taught me how to teach the word of God, was a pastor, loved the Lord. And I had a great opportunity. And from an early age, I had a responsibility to go out and labor, go out and work for the Lord. And I don't expect that I'm going to receive a greater reward than someone who was faithful with all of their time, even if their time was much shorter than mine. I have agreed on my wage with my master in heaven, and I eagerly await for him to reward me as he sees fit to reward my life. Now, this is greatly encouraging because for so many of us, we live life in the constant strain of comparison. We're always making comparisons with other people, others' service, others' opportunities, others' talents, others' notoriety, others' giftedness. We find people that we think are below us and find people that we think are above us, but the Lord is not going to reward according to length or notoriety, but faithfulness to the opportunity in front of us. Some of us will have eight days to serve the Lord, others eight weeks, and others eight decades to serve the Lord. We must be faithful with the opportunity in front of us. And in one sense, the Lord is saying, take care of yourself. Take care of your own work in your own business. And here, of course, it, this parable is given in the shadow of Peter saying, see, Lord, look at us. We laid down our lives. We left everything to follow after you. The rich young ruler, he wouldn't do it, but we did. What are we going to get? Don't compare, Jesus is saying. You just be faithful with the opportunity that the Lord has placed before you. Some of us have ministry opportunities that seem so insignificant. Some of us have giftings that are so small and, and unseen and perhaps even have a glimmer of weakness attached to them. But it doesn't matter. The Lord is asking for us to be faithful, not to be great in this life. Greatness in God's economy is measured by the faithfulness to the calling with which he has called us. So the last will be first, Jesus said, and the first will be last. Now, in verse 17, Jesus goes on and he gives a warning. Here on his way to Jerusalem, it says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, 
he took the twelve disciples aside. And again, he's teaching these men. And on the way, he said to them, verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now this is the final time that Jesus would ascend to uh, Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is higher in elevation. And he takes his disciples aside for this last moment special training. And at first he says things to them that they've, they've heard before. He's spoken to them of his death. He says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. He spoken of his coming death in chapter 12, in chapter 16, in chapter 17. But what follows are new details. He says, verse 19, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So to be flogged by the Gentiles uh, this means that Jesus was going to have to, you know, be handed over, of course, to Pilate and the Roman soldiers. And so the Gentile world was going to be involved in this process. That was new. He would be flogged by them. And uh, this, of course, would uh, be a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 5, that by his stripes we are uh, healed. A Roman flogging was a brutal beating designed to elicit confessions. The beatings would grow less severe if a confession was made, even if it was a false confession. Uh, it did not matter. But Jesus, of course, had nothing of which to confess. Isaiah 53 verse 7 tells us that like a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. There was nothing that he could say, so we can only assume that his flogging grew not less severe, but more severe as time went on. But he announces this to them and his crucifixion. And then, of course, that he'll be raised on the third day. It, what's interesting here, of course, on his way up to Jerusalem is that Jesus is filled with thought concerning his crucifixion. His mind is set upon it. And he's thinking about his uh, death. And many people refuse to think about the death of Christ. To him and to us, to true believers, it is the central point of the gospel message. Without the death of Jesus, there is no reason for the coming of Jesus. Unfortunately, many like to think only of the teaching of Jesus. And as I've mentioned previously, I think they like to edit and delete much of his teaching anyways, but they like to focus only on the lifestyle or the words of Jesus without thinking about what he was doing there upon the cross. He was condemning the world in one sense upon the cross because he was declaring that mankind was evil and fallen and that there was no way for us to save ourselves. And so Jesus, focusing here on his death, reminds his disciples and gives them some details. This would would serve, hopefully, as a calming uh, medication upon their hearts when they saw these events begin to unfold. And so Jesus 
prepares his disciples with his words. Now in verse 20 it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now the sons of Zebedee, of course, were James and John. Uh, the sons of Zebedee, they it's clear from the gospel accounts, they worked for their father. Uh, likely a fairly established, at the least, and lucrative at most, family business there on the Sea of Galilee, a fishing industry that Zebedee was running. So a significant man. And his wife goes to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneels before Jesus and asked him for something. Now, Jesus said to her, verse 21, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, there was a little bit of a, a sense within this woman that her sons perhaps would both be allowed to sit at Jesus's right and left hand. I mean, when you think about the life of Christ, there were obviously moments, uh, however rare they might have been, there were obviously moments where Jesus took three of his disciples into a, an inner moment of training. And, and those three disciples, his inner circle of the greater group of 12 were Peter, but also James and John. And so obviously, if Jesus, in his first coming, was going to drive out the Romans and establish a physical, earthly, messianic kingdom, as they expected him to do, then he would sit on a throne. And on a throne, there was only a right and a left. There were only two seats next to the throne. So in one sense, what these men are doing, and their mother, is they're making a, a request that excludes Peter from the equation. He can be important, but let the most important seats be given to two of your three, and let it be my sons, the woman is saying. Let it be James and John. Let, let them sit at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered verse 22. This is very fascinating. He said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And he's asking this question directly to the boys, to the men. And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now it's interesting, I, I wonder, and I have wondered, if when Jesus was dying on the cross, and then once the, these men understood what Jesus had done upon the cross, that really that was Jesus establishing his kingdom, once they understood that they had seen the promises of the Old Testament uh, inaccurately, that the first coming of Christ would be far different from the second, that he wasn't going to sit on a throne on earth uh, immediately, right then at that moment. Once they realized what was happening on the cross, I wonder if they, in their mind's eye, thought back to the right and the left of Jesus. There on the cross, two robbers who were crucified with him. And Jesus says, listen, you don't know what you're asking. And I can't give out the 
seats to my right hand and to my left. It's not mine to grant, but for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. The Father makes these types of decisions. But he asks them, point blank, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? You can't have those seats, but can you drink my cup? And they say, we are able. Now, they obviously had no idea what they were saying. His cup, his baptism was a, a, the cross, death, pain, suffering. He says, can you do it? Can you drink it? Can you consume it? They say, we are able. And, and Jesus said, you know what? The reality is you will drink my cup. Uh, James here, of course, was, as I've mentioned previously, the first apostle martyred for the, for the faith. And John was the last man standing. Church history tells us that he suffered greatly physically in his human body, earthly body, and uh, that he did indeed. They both drank the cup of the Lord. It's sad that there are so many who teach a version of the faith, a version of Christianity that is void of suffering and that sort of ridicules and looks down upon different versions of suffering that Christians might embrace. But we as believers, we have a cup to drink. We have the cup of mankind to drink, the, the affliction that is attached to just being uh, a descendant of Adam here in this fallen world. There are times that we uh, experience affliction unlike Christ and that we experience a little bit of punishment for our actions. There are times that we experience pain in the form of consequences of our actions. But there's demonic affliction. There's identification with Christ affliction, affliction that builds our testimony uh, affliction that God allows into our lives to purify us. Affliction that as we go through it, it actually saves us from greater affliction down the line because we learn such a great lesson from it. And there's affliction that's a mystery to us. But here, these men, Jesus says, they would be identified with him in his suffering and drink his cup. And so enough of the idea that a Christian is not going to suffer or experience difficulty. We at times are called to great suffering and difficulty. And these great men, James and John, were called to drink the cup. To drink the cup, not of the wrath of God as Jesus did, but the cup of suffering that Christ would experience. Now when the ten heard all of this, verse 24, they were indignant at the two brothers. They were very angry. Uh, displeased, upset, likely because they wanted to ask for those positions. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, as a ransom for many. Again, the idea that the first will be last and the last will be first. Now, he gives a little comparison here by pointing out the rulers of the Gentiles. You know, he says, look, you know how they do it. There's authority and they, uh, you know, they're rather self-serving. They lord over others. And uh, Jesus 
wanted to deal with their desire for th thrones and crowns and authority and power. Uh, they desired them for their own gain and being able to lord over others. And so Jesus says, listen, that's not the way it is among you. Whoever is great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first must be your slave. Look at me as your model. I came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. These men had to learn how to be servants in uh, the church and to really lay down their lives for the body of Christ. And fortunately, they quickly learned this lesson. These men became great servants in the early church, obviously minus Judas. Uh, they loved the Lord. They served the church. They laid down their lives, their finances, their time, their energy, their personal safety. They laid it down for the body of Christ. They were ostracized for their faith. So, you know, the Lord uh, loved these men and was preparing these men for a life of sacrifice, for a life of service. And so Jesus says, listen, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And this pointed to the death that he would die sacrificially to redeem us, to purchase us, to pay the ransom price for our salvation. It's so important for us as believers to learn how to serve one another. I find that there's a generation that is rising up within the body of Christ that has such great potential. I'm such a believer in this next generation, such great passion for the Lord, a desire to honor him, to learn about him, to really do the right things in the Christian life. But I found that a lot of times there's a passion, but that passion needs to be followed up with a laying down of life. Sometimes people want position, they don't want the position of the servant. They don't want the position of the slave. Jesus is telling us that if you want to be great, you must become the servant of all. Now, verse 29, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so uh, they're traveling out of probably what is old Jericho, probably traveling into the new Jericho. That's what the way Luke records it, that they were traveling into Jericho. There were actually two Jerichos at the time, the old Jericho or ruins of the old Jericho and then new Jericho. And there were these two blind men, and the cry of their heart is interesting. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And of course, this is a messianic title, and uh, part of the prophecies concerning the, me the uh, Messiah is that he would give sight to the blind. So they're clinging to that idea. We know you've healed the blind before. We know you could heal us of our blindness. You're the Messiah. You're the son of David. And they're crying out to the Lord, these two men. Now, one of the men was probably uh, more prominent than the other because when Mark tells this story in his gospel, he only records one man and actually gives his name, a man named Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus was probably the most vocal, but he had a friend with him as well. And stopping, verse 32, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me 
to do for you? What an incredible question. Sometimes I think we need to stop and ask ourselves and allow the Lord more appropriately to ask us, what do you want me to do for you? What is it that you desire? So much of our prayer life, I think, and time is spent just kind of bumping our gums, just saying different things, maybe mindlessly, endlessly. I think at times the Lord would say, what is it specifically that you want me to do for you? Jesus stopped, stood still, heard their prayer, much like he hears our prayer. And they said to him, verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Their eyes were open. They just turned straight to Jesus and he allowed them to recover their sight. Wonderful, powerful, a glimpse, I think, into the future kingdom of Christ. No physical infirmity, new bodies forever and ever. Amen. And God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.